Welcome to the Disney at Work podcast, bringing magical ideas to improve your world from the happiest place on earth. Your host is J. Jeff Kober, author, speaker, and consultant to organizations around the globe that look to bring best of Disney ideas to their workplace. Welcome to the Season Pass podcast. This is episode two of a two-part episode with guest Doug Barnes from the Season Pass podcast. On this two-part episode, we have been discussing what Disney can learn from other theme parks and then what other theme parks can learn from Disney. We decided we had so much to share with you that we would split it into two episodes. So this is the second part. Where this conversation will begin is with uh, the discussion about overlays at the Disney theme parks and whether or not overlays such as Guardians of the Galaxy or uh, Star Wars Hyperspace Mountain are successful, are easy, or are something that can be successful. So we hope you enjoy part two of our episode with guest Doug Barnes from the Season Pass. You know, I think the thing too, which is which is somewhat frustrating about this issue, is we know that they can do layovers well because, at least in my experience, I thought Hyperspace Mountain was fantastic. I had not gotten to, to ride it Hyperspace Mountain until yeah. uh, you know at the 60th just just last September, and it was fantastic. And they did that well, but then it's out in Hong Kong Disneyland as well. Boring as all get out. I mean, it's nothing. Oh, no. Just it, it just it didn't nothing have like the it. same. No, it didn't have oh, the wow. same thrill, the same excitement. The score did not seem to be synced up as well oh, to no. give you that additional rush. And so we know they can do it. We know that they can also refurb an attraction like they did with the Haunted Mansion. You know what was it seven years ago or so? And they can keep the original identity of that attraction, but then somehow make it better. So I think that's what's the most frustrating is. You know, it, it's it's like when your child uh, misbehaves and you say, I know that you can be good. We've seen it. What are you doing? We know that they can do this stuff well, but for some reason they've decided to to not uh, with some of these attractions and, and some of these areas. And that's what I think becomes frustrating, at least from a Disney yeah. Parks fan perspective. Yes, man. I, well, I haven't even been to that one over there, but uh, yeah, I, I, if you're going to go all out at one park, you should be doing it everywhere because you're representing the Disney company at every single park. It should be like grade A at every single one. So, um, so we're kind of all over the place, but let me, uh, let me just say, let's, let's keep this theme going of what can we learn, um, from other, other parks, other, um, uh, from the rest of the industry that could be applied better at Disney. Um, what does that look like? And, well, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think that uh, there it's, it's hard to say because we're always saying that we want to see something new, something fresh. And so that means transformation. And it's okay for most of these other parks to transform, but we don't want to see too much transformation with our, you know, our parks closest to our hearts, which are yeah. our Disney parks. And so there, there is a, there's a fine line that Disney does have to ride. They want to make sure that they make everything magical, but they can't take away, you know, what was the originally charm. established. Yeah, exactly. The charm there. And that's why we hold Disneyland so dear to our hearts, right? Because that's Walt's Park. So yeah. you, you can't do that. You could probably do it with Magic Kingdom here and there in small pieces there. But, I, I mean, uh, overall, you still want to keep what the Magic Kingdom is. And so 
these other parks are doing transformations and it's okay, but it's not okay for Disney to do. So that's, it's, that's a hard question actually, Jeff, because, um, there, there, there's a fine line that these Disney parks have. There's a rule that's not written with all of us fans who are sitting here together <laughs> about these parks, right? That's a fair, that's a fair comment. I, I think, and that's probably why they're having to go outside the berm in order to build a Star Wars land uh, because so many things can't be touched. I mean, right now they're t- taking out Tokyo Disney's uh, raceway, uh, whatever they call it, yeah, their version speedway. of the Autopia Speedway. Yeah. And in and uh, to put some other things in. And I don't think anybody is having a heart attack over that. I think if you took out the Autopia out of Disneyland, people would have a heart attack. Um yes. Out of that, out of that puppy. So it's been re, uh, reimagined with Honda as the as the new sponsor, and it's got, um, it's robot, and it's okay. You know, it's it's not bad, but you know, it is. It's a really tough place uh, for Disney to be in to try to figure that out, especially, um, especially with attractions that have been around for decades, um, and yet. We're seeing new big attractions such as Universal's Harry Potter, um, such as, you know, Disney uh, or Universal is getting ready to open Volcano Bay. And uh, and it's a it's an impressive looking park in and of itself. It looks like it struggles with its getting enough size to, to fit it all in. But it's an impressive looking park when you're driving along. Um, I four. They also said, "Hey, we've we're introducing a system by which uh, you don't have to wait in line to go on one of those water slides." And uh, today there was actually an announcement that said, or and that Disney is actually trying a fast pass out that where you don't have to wait in line. You can't reserve it in advance. It'll be more like the Disneyland fast pass where you get it the day of or at the time you're kind of interested in going on the attraction. Um, but now they're trying to figure that out. And part of me just wants to look at that and say, why why haven't you done that sooner? Why are you waiting for Universal to come out with that, for you to do that? Um, I think the yeah. same thing's true with, uh, with the whole Avatar. Uh, I'm, th- I'm thankful for Harry Potter because I don't think we'd have an attraction of that size and scope like Pandora coming to Disney Animal Very Kingdom true. if Harry Potter hadn't been first. So yeah. I, let me just go back to the Harry Potter because everybody said, oh, you know, Disney got its tail kicked in because Harry Potter came and, uh, and it's taken it to a whole new level. Let's dig a little deeper for a moment. What is it about Harry Potter that makes it so cool that Disney you know, needs to learn a lesson from it. And I think you were just said, you mentioned it earlier, you said the forefront, right? And so Harry Potter became the forefront because Harry Potter is the very, it was the very first new land to come in that literally was built to be immersive, that there was nothing else around. It's its own berm and its own land there. You get lost immediately in Harry Potter and the set design and the design of that land is so well done. It's so immaculate compared to anything else that Universal has ever done. So it's no longer about a ride. 
or a gift sh- right in a gift shop at the end. It's about yeah. an entire immersive land. Yes. That that is that makes Harry Potter uh, apart from from what Disney's yeah. done before. Yeah, well, I you know I I think about that because I was not at all a fan of the Harry Potter franchise. My uh, eight year old read the entire series over Christmas break, and so he's all in, um, and he's excited and doesn't even care if he goes on the ride like at all. He doesn't care. And I was trying to describe things to him, and I said, you know, everybody has said, and they wanted to make sure in the in the publicity when they first opened up Wizarding World over at Islands of Adventure, it is not its own theme park; it's a land. I think it absolutely feels like its own theme park because you step out of those lands and it feels like you're in a different park. There's a different energy from the guests. There's a different energy from the cast members. I think that you could almost draw, you know, an invisible plane and you could be able to tell that the maintenance is even different once you get out of there. It's just as if there's a different sense of pride. And I think the other thing which is impressive about, about Harry Potter, both of those lands, they learn their lesson, right? The biggest knock on the first Wizarding World of Harry Potter was it was so tight you didn't feel like you could walk anywhere it was cramped and then they do Diagon Alley and that place is spacious and there's places to just walk around where you can't do anything other than just look at stuff and so not only did they break ground and where they were at the forefront was the word you used with the first one but then they upped it even more with the second one by basically saying, all right, if you want it bigger, then let's give you more space to walk around and enjoy things. And again, let's not gloss over the fact there's only one attraction in Diagon Alley. One, right? One. Yeah. You can go do the the, yeah. the Ollivander wand experience if you want to count that as an attraction, and I'm sure they would. But if you're talking about rides, there's one in Diagon Alley, and it's one of the most gorgeous theme park spaces you will probably ever step foot in. And that's a testament to them, I think, understanding how to move from the the first iteration to the second. Well, and they had, they also had the train. That's going true. That's true. That's true. Alley to to the other park. But honestly, you almost feel like you have to step out of Diagon Alley, go back to London, and go into the train station, and it's almost like two different worlds right then and there. Um, you were going to say something, Doug. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, we say, yeah, bringing the forefront of, of immersive theming. It, it actually taking a page out of the old Disney book, what Disney did back then, how they built the berms, how they did that, how they just made this its own magical place. And uh, Disney kind of got away from that a little bit. And Universal just it was like, what? why don't we do this? Why don't we build these immersive, fantastic spaces that when you're in it, this is where you are. You're experiencing nothing else. I mean, you every single character, every single uh, cast member that's in there is a character. They're, they Nobody breaks off script. You know, you could say it's 110 degrees here in Florida, uh, and they, they are like, no, there's snow right here. It's been, it's been, <laughs> we're in London, you know, or whatever. So they're, it's all, they're always in character at all times. So it kind of is, yeah, maybe the forefront of theming right now, but they did kind of take the page, you know, from the, yeah, Disney agreed, book. agreed. But, but, but then again, you know, taking the, um, pumpkin juice and the, you know, the, taking the food and beverage experience, yeah. the retail yeah. experience to that new level, you know, more than just a t-shirt, but, or, or a beach towel, but taking all of that to its, to a new level, I think is part of what, why, yeah. why Harry Potter succeeds. And, you know, that immersion, I, I understood that that was one of the things that kind of, and as I understand the legendary story, that that J.K. Rowling actually had met with Disney with Imagineering, had talked originally with Disney, 
but then didn't feel like like they could fulfill her vision. She's, you know, here's this creator and she's got this vision in her mind of what this looks like. And you're saying, no, the walkway has to be much wider. You know, we can't have this narrow corridor because we're going to accommodate 20 million people a year. You know, you take Fantasyland Forest, for example. And I, there's a lot that I love about Fantasyland Forest. But ain't no forest. It's it's a it's a highway running through, <laughs> you know, the through the countryside it's got this big old road i want i want that immersion where you know not you can't necessarily see where the road takes you well and and this is actually what excites me about pandora when it opens knowing who's behind it because joe rody has really been making the rounds and has really been uh trying to describe and explain his philosophy of narrative placemaking and i don't know that there's a better immersive environment in any disney theme park in the states than Harambe in uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom. And they've added that Harambe marketplace recently, and you can walk around there and look at those details and posters that they have for events, and then they have the music going on. It's just, that is an immersive environment, and so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see some of that come back. Because really, it, at a Disney park, I believe, Disney's Animal Kingdom is the gold standard in terms of immersive environments. And so... That is an... Im- that is an immersive environment, but if you then look at the at the food and beverage stands, nobody's yeah. standing in line. Yeah. In fact, That's... they've got what three or four stands there, and at best, usually one is open most of the day, hmm. because they're not they're not gravitating toward the food. Why is that? It was. I don't think they like the food, hmm. and and I think they they got cheap on themselves by making that marketplace outside. Everything is outside at Disney's Animal Kingdom, and it's hot. It's just hot and humid um, for si- for about five or six months of the year. And, you know, I'd rather eat a cheaper pizza at Pizza Far and get some air conditioning than, than to, uh, as beautiful as that marketplace is. Now, all that said and done, I'm putting my money on, on Pandora because what I think has happened is they learned a lesson from, from Harry Potter in the sense that if they can, if they can exceed the expectations of the individual who created that place in his or her mind that they will succeed in in the experience and from what i can tell from from what i've seen i i think they have worked really hard to exceed what james cameron's vision was um as to what that looks like and what how immersive that is and the fact that it's you can enjoy it at night as well as during the day uh the two attractions for it i think they they have they have stepped up to the game in preparing for Pandora. And while I'm not a big fan of the movie, the attraction actually takes place several generations after the movie. I do think that uh, this is going to be, this is going to be um, uh, an incredibly immersive setting. Uh, unlike uh, any other that Disney has, has really created um, at that scale. Yeah, I I actually I agree with you, Jeff. Totally. I I think that this is going to be an amazing land, and it did take a long time to work it out because when you're working with two huge minds like like Joe Rody and with James Cameron trying to come together, how do you make this as perfect to the brand that it is? You're going to get something pretty special. Uh, Disney's not going to just throw out something that's just a mixed bag. It's going to be yeah all or nothing, and uh, it, it is kind of like um. You know, Universal with the Harry Potter. I never really watched the Harry Potter movies. I didn't really care. But it was done so well that I didn't care that I didn't see it. 
I never saw Avatar. I don't care. I want to see this land because it looks amazing. It looks beautiful. And uh, I can't wait for that boat ride. I think that boat ride that's, that, that, that's in that, that is going to be incredible. I still have some questions about the passage of the flight of passage one. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that right now just because I know uh, how a colleague of a colleague, a colleague of mine has been has seen it all. And and he says this thing is going to rock. In fact, awesome. the big problem with the big problem with the, the flight of passage one is he said there is a very long queue on this puppy. Uh, it's incredibly <laughs> immersive. And you do the whole thing with getting selecting your avatar and so forth. Yeah, he said. But but I, I wonder what their throughput is going to be on that attraction. But um, but I think people will uh, embrace the attraction in a way that I mean, Soren was the number one attraction at Walt Disney World. This takes Soren to the next level. I truly yeah. expect uh, there to be some. I don't know. It'll be fun. But but honestly, what what attraction set is in every Disney theme park in every Magic Kingdom park? And it's Alice in Wonderland. And. Yes, most people they haven't seen that movie, <laughs> or if they 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 could if they had they couldn't lay out the plot line. You know, yeah. does she go to the caterpillar first and then the hatter, or what? You know, what goes on here? You know, it's not about the story; it's about an immersive setting. And Disney's continually brought Alice back to every Magic Kingdom park because there's something about that setting that's truly fantasy, and and works. And they've done it differently for every park. Uh, for the most part, but there's always that element somewhere in the park. So I think it's the same thing. It's it's about an immersive setting, and um, and 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 creating that immersive experience that's going to win. Now let's take it from an industry point of view, if we could, um, because Doug, you have the opportunity to talk to a lot of gurus out there that are building these rides and attractions. When you talk to them. Many of them have done both Disney and outside. Uh, what are the messages you hear from them in terms of, boy, I wish they were more like Disney or, gee, I wish I wish Disney was more like this group. Yeah. Um, the main thing that I always hear is that, uh, you know, when you're dealing with uh, Disney and, and Universal, even in, in many cases here, you're dealing with so many different uh, corporate people, you're dealing with so many different entities and you have so many different people who you, so you, you have to have 20 yeses from all these different people before you can move on. Where when you get out and you're, you're more with Hershen family entertainment and these kind of guys, they say, let's do this. And they say, let's roll with it. You know, you, mm. <clears throat> you have one or two companies who are able to really focus on it, get that, get that main thing. And then with Disney and, and universal, uh, more Disney than anybody, you have to yeah. have it. So many eyes look at it, and so many people want to make their changes or make different things, and that's what prolongs them, and that's what their practice is, and they haven't broke from that, actually. So, really, the challenge is, is so many dog and pony shows that, exactly. that it holds up the development, holds up them getting from Blue Sky down to opening day. Yes, exactly. You have there's there's too many there's too many voices going on. They they, they it's better you're you're better for your product if you could get it there and you get your main people who who are the main people who imagine it, the main people who can engineer it and the people who could pay for it and keep it at that. When you go beyond you know, that, it, it it gets really really crazy. 
I love that. Uh, going back to your podcast with Mark Eads, which is podcast 342, if you have a chance to listen to it, he talks about the experience of having to turn around um, Visionarium, or well, I think there was another title to that ride and attraction at Disneyland Paris that involved Robin oh, Williams yeah. Yeah. and Rhea Perlman. But he had to take it over the last minute and get it to opening. And he talked about how he had to create a schedule where, okay, the star by your name, that means you are making the decision on this day. And if you don't make it, I'm going to make it. Yeah. But, but there, they have gotten a, he had had to force a process by which they could get to, um, an accelerated, um, time, get through an accelerated timeline. And, and I think that's what Disney could do better is to re look at its processes to see how it can. And it is capable of doing something on the level of Frozen, you know, and doing that overlay. That came in very quickly at the last minute. But, you know, gosh, you think of Walt, you know. He'd turn around a Matterhorn, a monorail, and a submarine all in one year, you know. Yeah, and that was what? Maybe a year and a half, you know. Bob Gurr and a couple other guys. Just get it done. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, Arrow, come over here, you know. And the next, you know. And, and those guys coming in and 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 doing things. I mean, it was a it was a roller coaster that had never been done with steel. You know, it always been a wooden roller coaster before. So I I keep thinking, okay, yeah, you know, we don't have Walt sitting there saying yes, yes, yes to everything. But man, can't we do something to get closer to that yes without having to go through so many dog and pony shows? I was just also going to say is that the one the one thing that I think too is that. Lately, the imagine because they have so many Imagineers there. So when they imagine something, the imagination is so big. And so when they first bring this property to them or this product to them or this project, mm-hmm. they're like, this is amazing, but it's too big. And so it's not necessarily yes, if how the old Imagineers used to say, you know, yes, we can do it if. Now it's saying they, they I think there is a little bit more of no, too big, make it smaller. And then that's where it gets to be a long process and it takes five, six years for them to finally imagine it before they even break ground. I also wonder too, and this is waxing poetic, I suppose for an entirely different episode, but I almost think that the, the fan community has kind of become an additional stakeholder in this Absolutely. in terms of when something is announced as possible if there's outrage, I mean, we will never know. And, and Jeff, you might know folks that, that might have a better idea of this, but it's entirely possible that Disney did have plans to mess with the Orlando Tower of Terror. But the backlash that people had, the fan community has much more of a say. Whenever I talk with my Disney class about yep. customer service and the um, take fives and the magical moments, I contend that the internet has actually made that job of cast members more difficult. Because no one is, uh, what's the saying? How, how would I say this? People are no longer amazed by grace, right? And so if somebody says, hey, this was a really cool thing. We got there. You'll never believe it. It was my son's birthday and we got upgraded at the boardwalk to a suite. Well, they post that online in many of 50 message forums. And all of a sudden everybody thinks, well, my trip's going to be ruined if I take my kid on his birthday and he doesn't get upgraded. And so, so 
I, I almost think that all these things, I mean, Universal for years has been putting out surveys that people will screenshot and put online of what would you think about a Lord of the Rings area of a theme park? They were asking about the Hunger Games. Yeah, because I want a theme park land where children are trying to kill each other, you know? <laughs> and um, Twilight. I mean, they're always kind of asking about these things to gauge guest feedback. And I wonder, and again, I have no knowledge of this. This is purely just conjecture. But if fans having such a loud voice now on the internet makes it more difficult if Disney would be thinking about something and the fans say, no, 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 no. Well, does that, okay, guys, now we got to go back and figure out what we're going to do because we're going to take it if we actually make this decision. See, I think actually Disney, yeah, it is a great observation. I think Disney actually is floating ideas around. You know, we've seen a couple of things where they go out and have their for, their survey people at the park exit ask you a mm-hmm. couple of questions and then that gets onto the internet. I'm not so certain that Disney hasn't uh, allowed that to go through the way it does. And and I and and there've been a couple other things that I think Disney's kind of floats ideas around to see where they go. So um now Guardians of the Galaxy at Disney California Adventure, I think if you had asked the fans, no they would have said no from the beginning. So that was kind of a out there suddenly Here's what we're doing. And this is maybe one of the other things that's going on with Disney. And so, you know, there are a lot of stories that do happen in the background. You know, Disney does work really hard to make sure that, you know, none of the stuff that does happen in the background to make sure that people know. I think this is one of those ones that was kind of like a slip because, uh, you know, my guess is, is that it was supposed to be part of a much larger Marvel land all behind it and it was actually going to be like the entry way for that marvel right. land and it was going to be taken part of it but somewhere along the line that marvel land wasn't ready but guardians of the galaxy was and they went ahead and just did it anyway before they had the whole process done with everything else that is supposed to make it special uh for marvel and that's why it sticks out as a sore thumb now yeah, maybe with the rest of Marvel, it will make a whole lot of It'll collective make a whole lot sense. More sense. But yes. and they needed something quick while they were waiting for Star Wars Land to come in, you know, to, exactly. to bring in your exactly. guests. So I appreciate that. I get that, and uh, I could see how that 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 comes. Do you think Disney is better for you know? People think that everything that happens at Disney is done by a Disney cast member who. You know, the by people like a Bob Gurr, people like a, a Tony Baxter. But now, you know, you have the Garner Holtz. You have uh, uh, you have all these other people who are really outsourcing to come yeah. in and do that. Do you think that's better for Disney? Do you think that's that's is that a win win for for everyone involved? What do you think is is good and bad about that you know there that that question you could go so many different directions with that question because i mean it used to be where they just had imagineering and then they started subcontracting with smaller companies like you're saying garner holton and brc and groups like that um but they still try to keep it like this is that imagineering entity yeah, they didn't want to show that there was anybody that they were doing because they felt there was something sacred about it being Imagineering, and it had to be all about Imagineering. And I think that what it is is that at some point Disney needs to realize that we understand that there are many people within this industry, and that is it's 
you instead of trying to to for so much in the saying that it's all imaginary, you know, let's, this is about themed entertainment. This is what it's about and that there are multiple people and sometimes you have to collaborate. You have to all the time. I mean, that's what Disney is doing now. That's what Universal, they're using a lot of the same people. But the thing is, is that uh, Imagineering did get too big. They got too big and they had to figure out how to minimize it and how to be able to work with other companies to make sure that they got their product out and at least at a, at a reasonably pro, at reasonable price. So uh, I, it's it's kind of one of those things where uh, I think that Disney need you know they Imagineering needs to be there, but at the same time, maybe their interest in that that entity of Imagineering has gotten so intense that they need to take a step back from it a little bit. Does that make any sense? Um, it, because it does. There's nothing wrong with, with just being responsible for the steering and then letting others who are better at what they do, do the rowing. Um, so, exactly. you know, thank goodness there is a, you know, a Garner Holt out there that can bring in, you know, so many, so many great things. And, and, but, I also wonder if, okay, if Garner Holt always worked at Disney Imagineering, which is what he wanted to do as a kid, you know, exactly. would, yeah. would animatronics today be a better, better thing than it is today? Not to say it's a bad thing. It's very yeah. good on many levels, but, um, but would it be even better? You know, is there a loss that Disney takes by outsourcing? Um, or maybe on the other hand, maybe that frees Garner Holt to to take license, to take risk, and to do things that Disney, under its dog and pony show structure, would never have approved of. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it really is such a huge question, Jeff. <laughs> I mean, and I know. I, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you, and and uh, um, it is. I I think that time is going to tell us. I think that this is a question that is being asked and sorted out as we speak right now. Um, it's, it's, it, we'll find out in the, in the future. I think we'll really know exactly what's going on and, uh, how Disney does, uh, uh, do their business with attractions, uh, down the road. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is going to be interesting. Um, uh, but, and I think Disney has, can learn and gather new ideas and things like that from other organizations. We going back to the Sentosa Island thing. Um, you know, when I went to Sentosa Island, there are two things that caught my attention that I didn't think about at the time, but now I'm looking at it and going, hmm, you know, Sentosa has a skyway that's used not as an attraction, it's used as a means of transportation. And here's Disney now, you know, looking to, you know, engineer the possibility of having a skyway used for transportation purposes. Uh, at the same time, a big part of Sentosa is home ownership. There are lots of homes on that in that resort that are owned by people. So I now see Golden Oak at Disney and see that they have done these exclusive, you know, gated homes and that type of thing. I, I, really, I could say, honestly, I think Disney's starting to take a couple of pages from other resorts and other attractions. Um as well as other attractions taking, taking their, uh, uh, taking their cues from Disney. Yeah. 
Well, it's a, it's a it's a much bigger business now. It's not just Disney. So Disney, if they want to yeah. stay with it, they have to take the practices of other great companies and and successful practices and use it in their own ways. So I think that's one thing that we're seeing. We we could say that Disney's the originator and all this stuff, but at the same time, Disney needs to learn still, and I think they are. It just takes them a while to to really work the process in. One of the things. Let me just finish up with this. Um, one of the places you've been involved with in the last couple of years is is really um, interviewing folks during the TIA Awards and really seeing the industry come together. Um, do you think? Do you think the industry? How, how? What does it look like in terms of collaboration? And do you do you see that sense of collaboration occurring through the industry? Yeah. Or, does it seem more competitive than ever? Uh, and I, I referenced that saying when SeaWorld was built back in uh, late 60s, I think, early, yeah, or early 60s, early 60s, Walt actually sent some of his PR people and sponsorship people and other people over to SeaWorld to kind of help them get started, give them some consulting, give them some ideas. He saw SeaWorld not as competition. He saw... SeaWorld as um, as really you know the more we people we bring to the greater Southern California area the more you know they'll attend Disneyland and and he did the same thing with Knott's he, he would go over to uh, visit Walter uh, and see very inspired by Walter Knott yeah very very much so both ways I think do you see that same thing happening today um, I know that there's been another period of time where Disney was very cutthroat and very competitive, uh, particularly in the 90s. I can point to a different resort and say, and say, oh, this was the hotel they were trying to take out on 192 when they were building this hotel complex, you know, and those kinds of things, I, I, um, which I'll say for another podcast. But but it was very cutthroat. I, well, I'll just tell you, when I was in the, a competitive water park uh, in the day, um, it wasn't every day, but about every other day, you would look up at about noon and there was a small plane that would fly over our water park. <laughs> and what it essentially was doing is it was Disney's plane from, they had a short takeoff and landing strip. It would take off that off that stole. It would come down to our water park, measure our parking lot, go over to SeaWorld, measure their parking lot, go over to Wet n Wild, measure their parking lot, go over to Universal, measure their parking lot, and come back down and see how the numbers were doing across the board. So it was a very competitive cutthroat kind of experience back then. Uh, what do you think, what do you see in the industry right now? Oh, it's, I think it's as competitive right now as it's ever been. I think it's extremely competitive and I think it's taken a whole new level with how Universal stepped up their game over the last, uh, you know, uh, eight years. Uh, but it's, it's weird because when you speak with everybody, like at the Themed Entertainment Association, and, and they're all different companies and different groups, they are always bidding and, and being extremely competitive to get that bid for that one ride, for that one attraction, for that one park. And what happens is that they're all going against each other. They're trying to, uh, you know, do a better job. They bring it in cheaper and stuff like this. But what's funny is that whoever ends up winning that project, the people that they were competing against, they just turn around and then they hire them. And all of a sudden now they're part of it anyway. But it's just all about, you know, who could come up with that master plan for whatever project that is. And then 
you know, because they want that big bang. They want that big attraction. That's what's going to help bring their business and and keep them alive and keep them going. But then, you know, when they see somebody else who's doing it, who's so so competitive and they see that it works, they'll, you know, they turn around and then they hire that person. They bring them in. That's one of the things that happened with Shanghai Disney. You know, it's it's Shanghai Disneyland. Uh, A lot of different companies came in and helped Imagineering bring Shanghai Disneyland to what it is right now because there was just so much going on and that there were so many different. So many elements. Elements, yes, that you had to bring in so many different groups. And these groups were turning around and hiring other groups to help them out with these things. And that's just the way it is. That's how this business works. It's, it's so weird how it could be so competitive, but at the same time so collaborative. And that's what's so you know, amazing. That's so funny because I, I learned of a third party that for a number of years has been working with Universal's Horror Nights here in Florida. And, um, and they've been, they, they're a third party that comes in their whole team helps do a lot of the theming and detailing and so forth for Halloween Horror Nights. And after last year's, they said, well, that's it. We're leaving. What, what, what do you mean you're leaving? Yeah, we got to go work on Star Wars land. <laughs> they've been hired over to go work yeah. over and to get, yeah. uh, those two parks going. So it, you know, I, I yeah. wouldn't be, again, that's a kind of a hearsay story, but I wouldn't be surprised because, Honestly, there's only so many um, really talented people who could do these kinds of amazing, talented things. And when they're done at such a yeah. scale, you know, where you've got not just a ride, but a land, an entire, you know, uh, new section coming in. Yeah. I guess there has to be a lot more uh, involvement uh, from other from yeah. others. Yeah, it is. And so, yes, it is a cutthroat industry. At the same time, it is also a very uh, collaborative industry and that everybody wants to be a part of that project because if you do really well on that project, partnering with whoever else, you might have a chance to do your own project down and lead that one. And that's where you get more money and more success uh, within that business. And so, you know, everybody who's worked on uh, Universal in some way, shape or form recently or worked on uh, Disneyland Shanghai in some way, shape or form, when you see their resumes and when they bring them to you there, you know, somewhere in there, they're going to put in those projects that, that that were there in there saying, we worked on this here ultimately to see if they could get that next big bid. Now your, your review of Shanghai Disney, I think it was, I think it was Brent Young that talked about his experience um yes and he was saying you know with the brand new pirates attraction which is so amazing you know it was like this audio engineer came from here and this you know this guy you know had been working over it jealous of universal everybody (laughs) you know what i owe you another plane ticket i gotta get you a plane ticket to go to one of these places (laughs) we gotta we gotta do a a buddy trip but you know Oh, man. I think your wingmen, you know, uh, your uh, uh, your two wingmen, Robert Coker and um, and Brent, uh, yeah. need to just buy you a trip and take you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, they both been to all. Yeah, you know, you're talking about Tokyo and Shanghai and all that. Yeah, those both have been to it. And man, when we record these shows, it's just like I'm just gonna mute my mic as they talk because uh, I don't want to hear my teeth grinding as a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but but see never but you can always say you know i mean you have been in a hot tub with bob Gurr, right because uh you at one of your one <laughs> one of your early podcasts right i, I wouldn't wouldn't know the number of it but yeah. it, you you all got invited to uh, bob Gurr's house and sat in his hot tub and recorded a podcast correct so we actually did not sit in the hot tub 
Okay. Uh, but he did invite us all over for the hot tub party. And when we got there, what we ended up doing is drinking martinis and sitting down in the backyard and is okay. be- looking okay. over his beautiful backyard. See, it's like, my version was my version was much more much more of a pull to get listeners. Doug, see, I, see, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, y- y- nobody would have known sorry. the David, difference. Wait, <laughs> I do remember now. Yes, I remember. I forgot about the bubbles. I forgot exactly. The bubbles. Yes, yeah. yes. Your version, David, was a lot more awkward. What I probably <laughs> about. <laughs> We're safe because we avoided an explicit rating, so we're good. We're good. We're good. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we've wrapped this up. I think we've gone to the uh, the the length that you normally find in a season podcast of two and a half hours. And uh, <laughs> oh, God. All the I think we're up there with the time. pioneers. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. No. Seriously, we thank you so much for joining oh, us, you. Doug. And um, and again, we got to have. Uh, we gotta have Robert and um, Brent on at some time as well, and um, but we really appreciate you, um, and we just appreciate your leadership in bringing so many industry experts. I don't have I don't have nearly the courage to ask people to come on my podcast, but you um, you have really brought in some great people, and you have illuminated the industry for a lot of people who want to know what this is all about. So I thank you. And uh, I'm just glad you could join us for this podcast. I'm absolutely honored. I thank you guys so much for the invitation. Uh, I am truly humbled. I, you know, the beyond, this is just for me, this is just a chance to get out and talk with people and be able to share their stories. I really have nothing to do with it. It's more just making sure that it gets out to the people. And uh, that's what I love about it is that it's, 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 our, the season pass podcast is about the people of the industry. That's what it is. And it's the people doing it themselves. I just simply capture it and bring it out. So uh, I, I am truly humbled and I thank you guys so much. And, uh, I, you know, really, I, I finally got to listen to your guys' show, by the way. And uh, I, you guys made me smile so much listening to the podcast. And I, I, I thank you guys for doing this. Cause I think that this is a podcast that was desperately needed in the, uh, in the Disney realm. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate that so much. So, all right, that wraps it up for us. Well, that'll do it for us today on the second part of our two-part episode with Doug Barnes from the Season Pass. We encourage you to go check out the Season Pass podcast at seasonpasspodcast.com and then head over to disneyatwork.com and by clicking on the podcast button in the upper right-hand corner, you will find information from today's show as well as information from past episodes. You may subscribe on iTunes and also visit our show feed on SoundCloud. We would love to encourage any of you listening to head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review so that others can learn what you're enjoying about the show and we can be able to share more of these business insights from Disney and other theme parks with other people and their businesses. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at podcast at disneyatwork.com. At